Welcome to Emory Innovators, a series of conversations between the Hatchery, Emory University's Center for Innovation, and Emory alumni who are innovation leaders or entrepreneurs, or have taken innovative approaches to designing their careers and disrupting their industries. All right, uh, so welcome everyone to uh, the most recent edition of Emory Innovators, which showcases conversations with the Emory faculty, staff, and alumni who work in innovation and entrepreneurship or have taken innovative approaches to designing their careers and disrupting their industries. So today we're excited to welcome special guest, uh, Duncan Cock Foster, a 2017 graduate of the Emory College of Arts and Sciences. With his twin brother, Griffin, Duncan founded Nifty Gateway, the premier marketplace for non-fungible tokens, also known as Nifties, uh, based on the same blockchain technology as cryptocurrencies, Nifto, Nifties are unique digital objects you can buy, own, and sell just like physical goods. So the brothers are on a mission to create a marketplace of 1 billion collectors of Nifties and also foresee a future in which these digital tokens may be paired with physical assets as proof of ownership. In 2019, their one-year-old startup Nifty Gateway was acquired by cryptocurrency company Gemini, which was also founded by twins, uh, the famous Winklevoss twins. So Duncan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Uh, so we're gonna talk more about Nifty's and Nifty Gateway, uh, and also your vision of Nifty's as a quote, fundamentally better digital good. Uh, but I'd like to start uh, a bit further back uh, in your innovation journey. So I'm curious about your years at Emory uh, and your, your studies in computer science. And so would you characterize your time here uh, by saying you were deeply immersed in your field of studies, uh, already casting an eye uh, to your future career, or maybe something of both? Yeah, I, I wouldn't really say that I was uh, deeply immersed in my studies personally. Um, during college, actually, I was working on a different startup, which was a, a clothing company, and we were trying to, to manufacture, um, we manufactured shirts in China and like sold them on campus and online. And honestly, that that is what I spent a lot of my time doing. Um, uh, as opposed to going to class, actually, I was originally going to to be in the business school, um, but I switched to computer science my junior year because I thought it would be more of a, you know, I we were working on the website for the clothing company, and I had been coding since I was pretty young, so I thought it would be more interesting. Um, I think there were a few select classes and a few select professors that I found really, really inspirational um, and impactful, especially in the the computer science department. But for the most part, I, I would say that I wasn't the most focused student and I was generally just spending my, my time on my own projects. Um, so I, I don't know if that's, I don't know if I was a good role model if, if you're looking for like a, a perfect uh, student. Uh, well, you know, considering that I look like your older and less successful uncle, uh, I think you've done pretty well. I think you're a good role model for emerging students. So, um, so here's a question. Um, 
many of the students we speak with at the Hantry are really focused on the professional side of things and kind of what's next. Um, and about managing that transition from student life to professional life. So how did you go about managing that transitional moment and finding work first at, at Accenture and then with your own startup? Yeah, it's a great question. Well, honestly, it was actually pretty difficult for me to, to find a job at all, hmm. partly because I, I wasn't the best student. Um, so I didn't, I didn't have like a very impressive academic record. And then a lot of, a lot of, uh, you know, I was looking for programming jobs and it, it's really competitive to get a, a programming job right out of, of college. So mm-hmm. I didn't do a, a programming internship after my sophomore year, after my junior year, I'd only switched to the major after my junior year. And so I was still like, I was kind of rushing to finish all the classes. So I didn't really have an internship and it was actually really, I couldn't really get a job anywhere as a, a programmer. I ended up finding the job at Accenture the summer after I graduated. And uh, I think I kind of got lucky, honestly. It was, it was only the fact that I was a computer science major and they're hiring a bunch of new people. Um, but yeah, I, I honestly had a pretty difficult time finding a job, which I, I think is an important lesson in, in a, of itself because a lot of, uh, a lot of students, especially at Emory, I think put, put a ton of pressure on themselves and they think like, if I don't get a, a great job immediately after I graduate, I'll never be professionally successful. But on, the older that I've gotten, the more I've, I've come to think that that's really not true. And, uh, you know, you're, um, you know, you can succeed at any time in your life. And that, that was honestly kind of the case for me where the job I got after college wasn't very prestigious and it, it certainly didn't really set me up for entrepreneurial success. It was only when I like struck out on my own that I, I found entrepreneurial success. And not just me, a lot of other entrepreneurs. I've, I've been reading a lot about um, the history of Twitter and, and Jack Dorsey. You know, I don't think it's well understood that Jack Dorsey was essentially a, a low-level contract programmer at a, a bike dispatch company before he moved to the company that became Twitter. He was sort of, as far as like, you know, the, um, the hierarchy of Silicon Valley, he was about as low down as it gets. And I was pretty low down as well. Um, but, but still like, you know, when, things can change when you find yourself responsible for like your own product and your own company. And, and when you're like really accountable, you know, I think uh, your true potential becomes unlocked. So honestly, my advice would be to not put too much pressure on yourself to, to find immediately professional success, immediate professional success. Don't, don't go thinking that every single person who's been successful had a great internship sophomore year and a great internship junior year, and then a great job when they graduated because people do really have very circuitous routes to, uh, to success. Um, it's interesting. I'm really glad to hear you say that. That's uh, a message that we try to stress here often at the Hatchery in response to the sort of stress that we see students put themselves under. Uh, ben and I even had a conversation that we called uh, the crooked career uh, because our own pathways have been you know, sort of meandering. Um, and it's the one thing that leads to the next, typically. Um, there's one other sort of question in that optic that we, we like to ask all of our, our alumni guests, and we may put a different spin on it, but um, folks are often interested in figuring out, um, you know, how they apply or translate less, lessons learned from their, their area of study. 
uh, and from their extracurriculars at college to their career. Um, I think that that takes on a different uh, relevance in your case because you didn't move straight into your field. And uh, in fact, it sounds like you're leveraging learning from things you did even before you arrived at college. But I wonder if you could sort of reflect a bit on, um, you know, how you translate your various skills and areas of expertise to something new when you have an idea. Yeah, totally. I mean, um, when we the, the scarcest asset, I think, for a lot of tech companies is literally just the people who can who can implement the ideas and who can code them. Um, as I said, it was it was difficult for me to, to find a, a true programming job. And the job I had at Accenture was not a traditional software engineering job, even though I did make use of my expertise. But when it came time to, to build the first iteration of Nifty Gateway, um, the stuff that I had learned in computer science, in my computer science courses was really valuable. And uh, that I think that was the main place that I, I put my, my knowledge to learn or my knowledge to like use. And when Griffin and I were working on it, I mean, Griffin was a, a math major, my, my twin brother and my co-founder. So he, he really didn't have any knowledge of um, computer science and how to code, how to like build products. Um, you know, he had taught himself a little bit of front end engineering, but there was still a lot of like, there was a lot of fairly complicated aspects of the system that we had to build. And I think if I had, you know, hadn't gone through the, the computer science degree at Emory, I wouldn't have been equipped to like fully to like build those systems and get them to a workable place. Um, so yeah, getting off the ground was really, really the most important thing. And, and for us, it wasn't, and this is almost always the case in my experience with, with entrepreneurship, especially if you're totally unproven the way we were, you really need to get something out there and you need to get people using it or else it's going to be really, really hard for, for you to get investment and for you to get people interested. So, basically with with Griffin's like self-taught knowledge of, of front-end programming and with my like background in computer science which wasn't extensive we essentially built a really simple product um, but one that fit fit a need in the nft market and that got us some immediate traction and the immediate traction was what allowed us to take the next step and get into an accelerator where they invested in us and then the accelerator you know we they're the ones who like helped us meet more people and that eventually led to the acquisition by the Winklevoss twins so it was really just getting that first thing out there, um, anything that worked and that anything we could use to get a little bit of traction. And then once you have a little bit of traction, you can take the next step up and like achieve the next milestone. If that's investment, um, you know, if that's like hiring more people, but yeah, I would say that was the main thing. And I honestly, I think if I, if I didn't have the computer science background, I, I did, it would have been really difficult for us to, to build the first iteration of Nifty Gateway because we didn't have any. We didn't have any money to hire programmers. Um, we didn't really have anyone who was like believing in us or backing us because we were too, you know, we did, we hadn't really done anything with our lives. So there's no reason for people to believe in us. Um, so yeah, we, we basically had to depend on ourselves. Um, speaking of things that you had done with your life previously, you mentioned that you really spent a lot of time on the t-shirt business and sort of building that up. Did that play into your either ability or comfort level in sort of making a transition to being out on your own and starting something new? Yeah, I think it absolutely did. Um, yeah, the, the clothing business was really interesting. So we, we basically used the, the college campus as a, a pretty significant resource for that. We, we figured out that it's actually way cheaper to manufacture clothing overseas than you might think it is. And uh, especially for 
like nice button downs, which are, you know, a, a, everyone needs a nice button down sort of in the Brooks Brothers style, um, especially on a college campus. And, and like Emory, it's, um, you know, they're really, really popular. So we like, we basically looked at some factories overseas to try and get those to see how much it costs to manufacture them. It turns out it only costs about $7 per button down. And we knew that Brooks Brothers was selling them for $90 or something like that. So we went through the process with the factory to manufacture the clothing and to import them. And then we would just sell them out of our dorm room for usually like $25 to $30 a shirt. Um, I honestly think the most, the most valuable thing I got out of that experience was um, overseeing the manufacturing of a thousand button down shirts from start to finish, which I, I did, I guess, um, that gave me a lot of confidence. The, the fact that I could manage that process. And then when they came, the fact that we actually got people to buy them and they actually became pretty popular on campus. Um, I think that gave me a ton of confidence. So that, that was a really interesting experience. And yeah, that, that's really what I was spending my time on instead of going to class. Um, so, <laughs> Uh, well, as side hustles or side occupations in college go, that one probably was pretty focused compared to many of the things people spend their time doing. So um, let's dive a bit into uh, Nifty Gateway and the concept of NFTs. Um, so I'm wondering if you could just describe in layman terms for the audience uh, just what a non-fungible token or Nifty is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a really powerful technological primitive, which is very new. And like the potential is just really being discovered for the first time. But a, a non-fungible token is a, a fundamentally better form of digital good. Usually like when people ask, or people like think about a digital good, the example I like to use is a Fortnite skin. A Fortnite skin is something that you buy inside the game of Fortnite that changes your character's appearance. You know, it's a purely cosmetic item. But if Fortnite shuts down, or if your account gets deleted for some reason, your Fortnite skin disappears forever. It's not as if you bought a pair of Nike shoes and the shoes are there. You know, imagine if Nike shutting down meant your Nike shoes would disappear forever. That's really weird. That's not the way that we expect our, our digital items to act. A non-fungible token is a digital item where the ownership record, instead of being stored by Fortnite on Fortnite servers, the ownership record is stored on a, a blockchain, which is a permanent, you know, a place where data can be stored permanently and, and it can never be deleted. And if I own something on a blockchain, nobody can prevent me from interacting with it. It's, it's permissionless. So an, an NFT, a non-fungible token is basically a, a digital good that behaves the way that we expect physical items to, you know, if all my Fortnite skins were, were NFTs, then Fortnite could get deleted and I would still have all my skins the same way that if Nike shuts down, I still have all my Nike shoes. So that's really what an NFT is on a, on a fundamental level. And as I said, it's a very new invention. I mean, they've really only been around for about two to three years. Um, and it's so we're pretty early in the, the impact that this technology is going to have, but they're already, you know, they're already having a pretty major impact, especially in the world of digital art, which is what Nifty Gateway specializes in. And, uh, like that's where most of the, that's what most of the NFTs we are, we sell are their, their digital artworks. Hmm. Does that make sense? It does. So let's actually then transition to Nifty Gateway itself. Um, what exactly does the platform do and enable others to do and what makes it so innovative in this new space? Yeah, great question. So um, the way I'm going to answer this is to also tie it into our, our like entrepreneurial journey and how we sort of progress from step to step. Because Nifty Gateway is not, 
static and the, the product has actually evolved quite a lot in the, the two years that we've been working on it. So I, I discovered the NFT community while I was working at Accenture and I was pretty bored and I was essentially looking for, looking for like technological frontiers, um, you know, new technologies that had just come about and people were trying to figure out how to use. Cause like my, my thesis was that's, that's a great way to, to start a, a company, right? It's like, it, this is another thing I learned from the shirt company. It's, you know, people have been making shirts for as long as, you know, as long as people have been around, it wasn't, there wasn't that much new. So there wasn't that much momentum. I mean, you can't really call up a, a VC and be like, Hey, the, the shirt industry is going to grow a thousand times in the next 10 years. So you should invest in my shirt company. So instead I started looking at things that have just been invented, especially new technologies that have just been invented and NFTs like fit the bill nicely. And at the time, a lot of people saw the potential and, you know, there was a legitimate belief that NFTs could grow a thousand or 10,000 X in the next five to 10 years, which is a pretty good way to start a, a company. Like a lot of the best companies have been started like that. Um, but anyway, so the NFT industry at the time in, in 2018 was so immature that you couldn't even use a credit card to purchase them. You could only use cryptocurrency to purchase them. That, that has to do with the fact that they're blockchain based digital items. So a lot of the, the way that they're coded and created is blockchain native itself. But, but Griffin and I thought, okay, the, the NFT industry is like poised to grow. This is a, a huge technological innovation that a lot more people are going to use, but that's not going to happen if um, people have to use cryptocurrency to buy them. So the, the first thing that we put out was literally just a product that allowed you to purchase an NFT with a credit card. And that was the product that, that got us like our first little bit of traction. And that's what got us our like first round of investment. But once that, once we like built a product and got it out there, we could, we quickly realized that that product in itself wasn't going to be a defensible business and it wasn't going to like work out for the long term. So even though that, even though that product had like got us our first round of investment, um, like got us a lot of traction, we, we quickly decided to build something else, which is what we are today, which is basically a, a marketplace for, for digital artworks that are all NFT backed. Um, and so that's, that's what Nifty Gateway is today. And that product has been incredibly successful because there's, there's never been a way to collect digital artwork before. And the world is essentially clamoring for a way for ways to collect digital artwork. We launched it in March of March of this year, March of 2020. The first month we launched, we did $30,000 worth of volume. And in November, we just passed $1 million in volume. Yeah. So it's been 3000% growth since we launched this product in 2020. And, uh, I, I guess the reason that I'm telling that story is like, it's the, the thing that w when we first started, we really had no traction and we had, a as I said, like nobody really believed in us. Like no one wanted to invest in the company because there was really no reason to invest. And we, we weren't able to launch the full digital art marketplace from there, but we, we could launch something much simpler that we knew there was a need for. Once that got a little traction, then people started giving us more, you know, people started believing in us more and investing in us more. And then once we had the investment and belief, then we could launch the product that we wanted to launch the whole time. But it was a very iterative process. And I think you, you kind of have to, to start, start small and the small victories have to add up or else you're never going to be able to like jump immediately to the, to the big thing. You have to start small and like build up to the big thing. 
Um, that, it's interesting there, that suggests maybe lots of follow-up questions and there are certainly, you know, core entrepreneurship questions that can be asked there around, you know, uh, process for growing things iteratively and sort of, uh, evidence-based entrepreneurship, but I'd like to take it in a little more abstract direction and say that, um, you've raised questions there about what we value and believe in and where we invest as a result. Um, and I, it made me think of an interview you gave uh, in New York Magazine earlier this year, where you said, quote, what makes art valuable as an asset is authenticity, liquidity, and longevity, and stated that nifties are superior to traditional art by all of those measures. So um, because you are a graduate, both of a computer science department and uh, a college of arts and sciences, I want to dip, dig a, a bit deeper into this question of, you know, of valuation and that assessment in particular around art. Um, do you feel that there are also other, maybe more humanistic characteristics of art that play into its valuation as an asset? And, uh, you know, or are there features, are those features somehow becoming less valuable in a digital age or in a commercial age that collects art more as an asset? Yeah, um, I mean, absolutely. And as soon as I saw that quote, I kind of, uh, I was like, damn it. Because I, 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 <laughs> I was worried it would be taken out of context where like, as if for, for me just saying that like, there's no like artistic value in art and it's just only an asset, which is really not what I was trying to say at all. I, what I was what I was trying to say was that like irrespective of the artistic value, which is in my opinion like most of what gives art value, like irrespective of the artistic value, the other factors that contribute are like longevity, authenticity. Sure. So like, I, if you basically what I'm saying is like, if you have one Picasso work and you have no idea if it's authentic, and like it's mostly faded and destroyed, even even though it might have a ton of artistic value, those other factors you know, those, those things are, you know, authenticity, longevity, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Those are going to subtract from the, like, how much people are willing to pay for an artwork because, you know, that, that does have a major impact on the value, but uh, obviously the, the artistic value of an artwork is the, the main thing. Um, I, I don't mean to come off sounding, you know, I, I yeah, I don't want to get stereotyped as someone who like doesn't care at all about like the artistic value of something. And that's mostly what we work on. Like that's most of what we spend our time on trying to help artists like come up with new creative ideas and help them come up with cool new art to release. But uh, yeah, I, in general though, those other things, like they are going to have an impact on the price that people are willing to pay. And, and they're major, major issues in the physical art world. Mm -hmm. I think people, uh, sorry. No, I, I was going to say, I think people don't quite have, have an understanding of how fuzzy these concepts can really be. Um, the example I always like to give is that Andy Warhol, Andy Warhol, he was very prolific and he had a lot of people who made art on his behalf. And sometimes he didn't even see it before it was released as like an authentic Andy Warhol work. So, so now we, we really have no way, it, it's difficult to determine what's considered an Andy Warhol authentic work. Cause he's essentially like licensed, he's telling other people to do stuff. So there's actually a, a board of people as a part of the Andy Warhol Foundation, and they're the ones who vote officially on what's considered authentic and what isn't considered authentic. And as you can imagine, a lot of collectors 
get upset about this. And one collector, um, they, they said his work was authentic. And then five years later, they changed their minds and they're like, okay, it's not authentic. I mean, before that designation, when it was designated as authentic, the work was worth millions of dollars. When it's designated as not authentic, it's worth nothing. And so he sued them because he's like, you guys can't just do this. You can't just say my work is not authentic. So it's really kind of a, it's really kind of a weird situation. And I, I don't think it's commonly understood what the, the fine art world is really like when it comes to authenticity. Um, I mean, that, that's an interesting response that points to, you know, all sorts of questions in that industry. Um, you know, and, and that's not new to Warhol, right? There are, Renaissance art is famous for this too. Some of the, so many things have been attributed to some of the great names. Uh, and there are debates that have raged for hundreds of years over whether it is or it isn't. Um, but I do, I am curious about the second part of that question, which is, um, and, and not to put you in a corner because I understand that um, when, when you're talking about uh, new technology and ways it can be used, there's a tendency to frame that in very net terms. And so it can make it sound as if you're, you know, about that, just those aspects of art. But I am curious, uh, since you have thought so much about the space, if you do see um, that uh, certain types of collectibles and art in particular is being commoditized or treated more as an asset class uh, in a way that maybe it didn't used to be. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that is happening. That, that was happening well before NFTs came about. Um, I, I would question, I mean, honestly, the artists are often the, one who, the ones who benefit from that, in, in my opinion. You know, really that leads to people paying more money for artwork. The, the art industry has grown at a, at a ridiculously fast pace over the last 10 to 20 years. I think 10 years ago, you know, the, the annual global spend on art was 20 billion. And in last year it was something like 65 or 70 billion. So people are spending way more money on art than they ever were. I think a lot of that has, does, I mean, it certainly helps that art is being considered a, a store of value and, and sort of treated as an asset. Um, you know, I, I certainly understand that like why people, some, why some people don't like that. But from my perspective, what I've, I've really seen is like, it, it benefits the artists enormously. And we, we kind of sit, we, I mean, we're sort of the perfect example of this, right? Before Nifty Gateway and before NFTs, all digital art was free. You couldn't really own digital art. So like digital artists essentially made no money. And a lot of the people making on our platform now, the only way that they could make a living before our platform was they could, you know, be, be hired out to create animations for commercials or like, you know, um, for concerts or stuff like that. So it wasn't exactly a great living and they were constantly being told what to do. Now with NFTs, they're able to charge like 10 times, 20 times as much for a specific artwork. They're able to make exactly what they want 100% of the time. They're able to essentially make a living by like being an artist as opposed to just being a contractor. Um, so it's really been like a, a life-changing event for the, the digital artists on our platforms and our and on other NFT platforms. And that only happened because digital art is, you know, collectible and and ownable for the first time. Um, so this is interesting. Um, it, it begs a question. I'm going to sort of jump off script here and and say that I personally think. Uh, one of the biggest downsides of the whole digital age is that 
it has devalued um, artists, writers, uh, producers as content people. Uh, and with this term content, it's almost like everybody who controls the distribution uh, mechanism has with this magic wand devalued everything that goes into that mechanism. Um, and I wonder if you see other applications in say creative writing or other you know creative fields where this could be used to uh, to create new value or or to recreate the value of the artist. Certainly, I mean certainly we see people interested in that almost every day. Um, the music industry is, I think, the number one place where people see this. Uh, we talk to a lot of musicians and, and we've released collections with Three uh, Lao and RAC. And RAC, I think he, he's won one Grammy. He just got nominated for another. We have some other really exciting musician collections coming up that I can't talk about, but we're, we're getting way more into the music world. And musicians almost universally, almost to a person are upset about uh, the way Spotify works. And they really, really don't like the, the new world that um, you know, the digital, the internet has created for them. They all want to go back to the, to the times when they would just sell records. Yeah. And so what, what a lot of them want to do is they want to create NFTs that allow you to, um, sort of like an NFT becomes similar to a record. And if you own the NFT for a song, then you can listen to it. And they, they sort of want to use this technology to recreate the, the way things used to be. I, as far as if that's going to happen, I, I, I'm really not sure. I mean, it's something that we're keeping an eye on. And if it's, it's something that we think we can like add value on, then certainly we'll, we'll do it. But, uh, I, I mean, I will say, yeah, a lot of people are really, musicians are really upset with the way that the current platforms work and it really makes them angry. Um, it's interesting until that day comes, uh, I would point out there's another Emory alumna, a former Google, uh, employee, uh, who owns a record company in Austin. Uh, that it has disrupted the industry by simply reducing the time to press for physical records. So taking it from like eight months to six to eight weeks. Um, so uh, it's another way to sort of disrupt it maybe on a smaller scale in the interim. Interesting, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank on her name. Um, so one thing, uh, you know, you've talked about a lot of ways that you've seen opportunities emerging and figured out how to make that into some sort of opportunity. Um, I'd like to sort of turn that equation in terms or on, uh, you know, make it a little more meta and talk about the way that people use that kind of innovation mindset to, to sort of engineer their careers. Um, something that entrepreneurs and innovators uh, all seem to have in common uh, is this need to innovate their own career path. Um, as you know, the vast majority of startups fail. Uh, corporate innovation roles tend to have very short tenure. So in that optic, success is in innovation and entrepreneurship are often the result of this kind of continuous professional design process. But in your case, uh, you were only about two years out of undergraduate degree when you uh, your startup was acquired, uh, and not just by anybody, uh, but the Winklevoss brothers. Um, you've been sort of coding since middle school. Um, would you say that you have been consciously sort of engineering your career pathway uh, on a proven model, uh, maybe, you know, the model that the, the Winklevoss brothers or others have taken, or were you just doing things you loved and you happened to sort of get the right idea at the right time uh, to capture the right investors? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Honestly, it would be much more the latter. Um, I, I don't think I was really consciously engineering my 
career much. Um, I mean, as I mentioned, I wasn't a very, I was an okay student. I wasn't a great student. Uh, I spent a lot of time like working on my own projects and hanging out in my fraternity. So I didn't really have very good job prospects when I graduated. And my job at Accenture was like, I didn't really like it that much. Um, it, it was sort of, yeah, I was, I was assigned to, to be a contractor as a part of that job. And essentially you get like, Accenture, you get like lent out to a lot of different companies, especially in my role. I mean, Accenture is a huge company, but my role was, I was essentially getting lent out to different companies to do a lot of like manual work. So I didn't really like my job and, uh, I didn't really have many other choices. Like I, my, my really only, my, my only choice was to like figure out something else. Cause I'd sort of like, uh, you know, like I didn't have, I didn't have great career prospects up until that point. So basically I, I, that was part of the reason that I decided to quit and try my own thing. Um, because I, I thought it would be a, a path to a better life that ended up being like quite true and it ended up being true way, way faster than I expected, which is, uh, which is really awesome, but it totally could have gone the other way. And even a lot of people who were in our accelerator class, you know, their startups failed and now they're like back home living with their parents and sort of back to square one. For us, it really went, yeah, it, it went the opposite direction. And it was like almost like really quickly after we, we quit, I think, I think we got acquired seven months after I quit my, my job at Accenture, which was just like spectacular and life-changing. Um, but yeah, certainly, certainly I think luck played a, a role, but the, the reason I took the risk was really because I, uh, I didn't have very much to lose. I didn't really have much of a prestigious career I was working on. Um, and so like, I, I thought it'd be like good to give it a shot. I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's super helpful. Honestly, um, if I were, yeah. Well, it is. And it's also interesting, you, you know, you've actually put your finger on a bigger, uh, issue in terms of innovation and the way it's done. Um, you know, there's been a lot of criticism lately of venture capital and the way that it's investing increasingly in kind of, uh, you know, better known quantities and more incremental uh, sort of innovation. And likewise, within corporations, there's been increasing investment in uh, things that improve business efficiencies, very much H1 type of stuff. And this has, uh, you know, a long-term uh, consequence. And I think the same could be said for uh, somebody's personal career, right? Like uh, if you hit the right idea early in your career when you have little to lose, um, you're more willing to sort of disrupt everything that you know. Um, yeah. And by definition, established industries aren't looking for something radically new. Um, you know, in fact, they kind of want to, uh, to, to see that that kind of thing doesn't happen because uh, to some extent, their well-being depends on something, you know, not too radical uh, coming uh, to market. So it's an interesting point and I think a useful one. Um, yeah, and I think that that is... That might be more true for the art industry than most industries with the art industry, which is like remarkably unchanged for, for hundreds of years. And it, it's one of the, like the internet has barely touched the art industry, which is fascinating. Um, I mean, it, yeah, it, you really, the craziest part to me about the fine art world is you see artists who sell work for a million dollars, like every painting they sell for a million dollars will have 5,000 followers on Instagram. And they're essentially not known at all outside the, the niche of the fine art world, but inside the niche of the fine art world, their, their paintings are worth millions of dollars, which is really remarkable. Um, 
Yeah. Also, the other thing that I would add is I, if, if your goal is to be, if I had to redo it, what I would do instead is, uh, you know, I would go try and get a coding job at a, a startup that was like small to mid sized. Um, and I would really like, I would go there and try and learn from them. I think that's the best way to set yourself up for, a for being a, an entrepreneur. And then a lot of companies, if you're an alumni of like Stripe, for example, that'll be enough to get you in the door with, with venture capitalists. Like they'll, they'll at least listen to your pitch because you're, you're, you're working, like you're coming from a, a really experienced company. When we, when we first launched, like no one would listen to our pitch because we basically hadn't like thought about it or like planned our, our careers. But I do think it's very possible to, to plan your entrepreneurial career. And the best way to do it would be to, to go work at a, a startup that's like small to medium sized, um, you know, probably like preferably in the, in the Bay area or, you know, there's a lot of good Atlanta startups also like stored, I think, um, they just raised a great round. So yeah, that, that would be a, a really cool company to work at. That would be my advice. If you are trying to architect an entrepreneurial career. It's interesting. Yeah. There's uh, there's a ton happening in the uh, FinTech space, uh, here in Atlanta, it's sort of becoming the emerging, uh, center of that kind of, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, well, that, that's that market. Um, so in my experience, innovators really never rest. Um, and so, uh, to wrap up my questions before we open this up to the audience, um, I'm wondering if there's anything that you're working on right now, uh, that you're especially proud of kind of a next thing that you can discuss. Uh, and also, is there anything still out there in the world, uh, you know, that you'd want to solve for? Uh, where you really think that something you could bring to the table as an innovator could make the world a better place? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I'm still working on a Nifty Gateway. We're essentially building the company underneath the, the Gemini umbrella and working directly with the Winklevoss twins. So I'm still incredibly busy doing that. And that, that's my full-time job. And it's like basically what I spend all my time doing. Um, and yeah, we've been growing at an insane pace, as I mentioned, up like 3000% since we launched this year. And it, it seems like we're just going to continue growing. So that's really enjoyable. We also have, we're also hiring a lot. We have 13 employees now. Um, so I'm learning how to be a manager, which is tricky, but, but, uh, rewarding. And I, I think probably, probably by like next year, we'll probably have like 30 employees. So Nifty Gateway itself is still growing really, really quickly. And the Wake of Us Twins let me and my brother operate it pretty autonomously, which is really awesome. So I, I'm probably going to be at Nifty Gateway for the foreseeable future. Um, if I ever were to leave though, I, I would definitely want to, to increase the, like the scope and the, the scale of whatever I work on. So, um, you know, I'd probably try and do something really, really disruptive and something that would like truly impact a lot of people, like maybe something in the space industry or like transportation, but, but something that's really, really like large and in scale. Um, I, I think a lot of what a lot of entrepreneurs want to do is they want to come up with a small idea that makes logical sense to them. And then, uh, you know, they, they view that as like more achievable and more in scope. But I think the, the longer that you spend around startups and companies, the more you start to, to think that actually picking a really, really big goal might be just as achievable as picking a small goal. And if you succeed in the really big goal, 
the impact that you're going to have is much larger than the the impact in the in the small goal. So, cool. I, yeah, I, I think if I if I left Nifty Gateway, what I would probably do is spend like six months to two years just studying other industries and trying to find a, a really really big problem to work on where I thought that I would could have an impact, and then I would. I would essentially fund the like early stages of the company myself so I could keep most of the equity. And then after that, I would approach the, the venture capitalists that I, I now know and have a good relationship with and uh, tell them why it would be a, a good idea to fund the company. Essentially, like basically just using, a, using my past success to, uh, to do something bigger in scope and bigger in scale and something where I own more equity. That, that's the entrepreneurial journey. But yeah, I'll, I'll probably be a nifty gateway for, for the foreseeable future because it's, it's growing really quickly and it's really, really exciting. And we are, I mean, we're changing the lives of, of many artists around the world. One of the artists on our platform um, just bought a house with the, the money he made off Nifty Gateway. But yeah, it was really fascinating to see. He bought a house, he had a, he had a child. He never had a way to sell his work before. And uh, so th that, that was really cool for us to see. Huh. Um... If, if we have time at the end, um, I want to come back. You just raised so many interesting points about different different measures and questions of scale. Uh, and the point that I'd love to ask, uh, if time allows, after we take questions from the audience. And uh, I would encourage people to please uh, type your questions in chat, uh, and then we will uh, we'll raise them to Duncan. Um, but the question that I would love to come back to, because it's not one we get to ask very often, of a young entrepreneur is uh, a question about the challenges of scaling your workforce. Uh, because most of the people who have had that sort of experience um, have many years in industry. Um, and it's really rare for a young entrepreneur to have gone through the, this process of scaling their team uh, and the challenges associated with that. And then, you know, from my perspective, when you're young, there are additional challenges to managing uh, and growing a team than when you're older and more established. So um, let's uh, let's pause though real quick uh, and see if there are questions from the audience. Uh, so folks, you should be able to hit chat um, and uh, put your questions into the chat bar. Okay. While we're waiting for that, I'm going to go ahead and ask the question then. So what, what do you see as some of those challenges? I mean, what has been, uh, you know, from that position of being a young entrepreneur, really barely out of college, brand new startup, uh, and having to manage, uh, you know, scaling up a team, what has that been like? Well, I think it's really hard because as you said, uh, I don't really have any experience. I mean, really my only qualification for the job is uh, the fact that I found a nifty gateway and that I, I know a lot about the the NFT market and like the company itself. And that's really my only qualification. I, I've never managed anyone before. Um, so like, I, I do find it like quite daunting and honestly a little bit scary. I think the best thing to do is to, to try and educate yourself. You know, there's a lot of resources out there about what it takes to be a, you know, what it's like to be an entrepreneur at this stage and how you manage people. Um, yeah, I think it's the sort of thing that you can teach yourself and hopefully your employees are understanding and they don't have super high expectations. Um, and you know, that can also be, you know, part of your strategy should be like, make sure you recruit people that you really want to work with and that you like, that are going to be understanding and forgiving of you really try and bring in as much 
try and bring in talent, uh, people with skills you don't have. I think one of the, the hardest parts for entrepreneurs and like a really common failure mode is they're used to doing everything themselves. And when we first launched Nifty Gateway, I mean, we literally did everything ourselves from like opening a bank account to coding the, the front end of the website. But as you scale, eventually you're going to be doing like 0% of the actual work yourself. Eventually your job is only going to be um, telling other people what to do and like collaborating with other people. So you need to start adjusting your mindset to that. And I think that can be really hard for a lot of people to, to give up because they're used to, you know, the thing that, that got them there is being really talented at, at doing stuff. And then all of a sudden they're basically told like, okay, you can't do any more stuff. Your only job is to, to manage other people. So I think that can be a really hard transition. Basically, like you just have to mentally prepare yourself for it, educate yourself, you know, get mentors, uh, talk to other people who have been through it. We're really lucky because we're owned by Gemini and the Winklevoss twins are always on hand to, uh, to answer our questions as well as the other Gemini executives. We're all really competent. So we're extremely lucky in that, in that aspect. But uh, yeah, it, it, you know, management is a skill. You're, you're probably not going to be great at it at first. Um, you have to recognize that if you don't make the transition from individual contributor to manager to leader, then, you know, the company is going to fail. So you, you have to make that transition and then just like set about trying to, to make it as, as cleanly as you possibly can. And that, that's what we're working on right now. It's still difficult. It's still something that I struggle with, but I'm improving soon. Soon the engineers will take away my, my access to the Git repository. So I won't, I won't even be able to write code even if I wanted to. So <laughs> yeah. That's that. um, well, we've got some good questions that have come in. One from a student who says, uh, thanks for coming. Uh, I'm a junior in the BBA program and have taken CS 17171. Which CS classes gave you the best background to build Nifty Gateway? Um, Honestly, the, the CS professor that I connected with the most was uh, Emir Vigfason. So I, I personally, I would like look more at a professor than a sp particular class. Because um, with, any, with any product you build, there's never going to be a curriculum that tells you what to build or like how to build it. It's, you're going to have to figure it out for yourself. So you should focus much more on like building the skills that will let you figure it out for yourself. Um, and I think personally, the, the best way to do that and the way that I was most successful was by like learning from other really smart people. Amir is incredibly smart. He teaches CS2 and cybersecurity, at least he did when I was there. So I, I would just try and find a class with him and take it because he's like a, an extremely brilliant programmer and, you know, listening to him and like seeing how he thinks about programming will teach you more about how to, how to do it than, than a lot of other things will. Um, okay, some other questions that have come in. Uh, one person said, just fascinating conversation. Two questions. Can more than one person own a piece of digital art? And if so, how does that affect value? It's interesting. And since you're in the digital space, did that reduce your startup costs? Yeah. Well, the answer to the second question is 100% yes. Yeah. This is another thing that I learned from the, the shirt company is that it's, it's just far easier to build a, a software company than any sort of physical product company. Mm -hmm. um, 
and that that's like pretty that's pretty well established a lot of people try and do digital things exactly for that reason now though actually i think I, the pendulum has swung a little bit and now I, now i start to see like difficulty in startups as an advantage and not a disadvantage because the more difficult your startup is to build the less likely that someone else is going to build the same thing and uh like take away all the value you created so it's actually not the worst thing in the world if you're looking at an industry and you're like, okay, this will take us five years before we can get the product off the ground. If it takes you five years, it's going to take your competitor five years, which is probably going to discourage most of your competitors. And no competitors means like your startup is going to be more valuable because you're going to capture all the, the equity. If you have a lot of competitors, it's way harder to build a valuable company. Mm -hmm. um, so, but yes, it's far easier to build in the, the digital realm. Um, that goes for art. It goes for literally anything. Um, but there, there's a different set of challenges as, as to building in the physical space. As far as can more than one person own a, a piece of digital art? So there are, there are platforms where you can essentially take a, a work of digital art on Nifty Gateway or on other, other, other platforms, and you can split it up into different pieces, and then people can own the pieces. Um, it's sort of like, people, people try this with physical art as well. There's a few startups that let you I think Masterworks is one of them. You can buy like a, a, sh a share in a, a Banksy or a, a cause artwork. And then when the piece resells, you get the returns. Um, so yeah, it's a similar concept to that where essentially you break up a work of art into a bunch of different shares and whoever, if someone like re has all the shares and they like can claim the artwork. Uh, but that, that's sort of like an early version, not on Nifty Gateway, like only one person can own a specific work of digital artwork. Some of the digital art is additions though. So sometimes an artist can choose, they can either make their work a, a one of one edition or they can make it an edition of five or an edition of 10. They can actually choose how many editions they wanna create. Um, so I guess in, that's, that's kind of multiple people owning one digital artwork, but they own different edition numbers. So there are still slight differences. Interesting. I mean, it's sort of uh, like the lithograph or print process of old. Uh, right. Exactly. Here a, uh, a like number two hundred and seventy or something in a series of Dolly prints that my uncle had purchased. So, um, so another interesting question that came in. Uh, you seem very aware of what you don't know, which is a compliment. Uh, how do you upskill and fill in your knowledge gaps as you go? Well, the first thing I would say is that if you are not aware of, you, of what you don't know, then you're never going to be able to upskill and fill in your knowledge gaps. So like, first you have to spend time thinking about what you do and you don't know. And then once you've figured that out, then you can try and fill in the gaps. But I think a lot of people miss that first step completely, um, but it's actually probably the most important step. The, the main way that I try and learn new things is either by reading, listening to podcasts, or talking to people who know about them um, there's a ton of good information out there, uh, on the internet. There's a ton of good information on startups, on art, uh, on all, all sorts of different topics. Um, you know, sometimes it can be a challenge to, to find that good information, but the, one of the coolest things about where we live right now and like the time we live in is a lot of the best information is just online. So like when we were starting Nifty Gateway, we were looking at the, the Y Combinator startup school. Y Combinator Startup School is like a, a set of 20 presentations. They taught it as a class at Stanford, but they brought in a lot of the, 
a lot of the most accomplished people in the startup world. Um, and they all gave lectures. That's just on YouTube. You can just go watch those lectures on YouTube, which is really remarkable. Um, and like Y Combinator also, I think they have a section of their website called library where they just have a, a bunch of great resources for entrepreneurs and how to do startups. So I spent a lot of time on there. I'm also a big fan of the acquired podcast, which is a podcast that details different startup histories. Um, I, I honestly think that like learning about history, either of companies or like of, of other things, like that's, that's one of the best ways to gain an informational advantage. Cause you can see how, like, like, for example, you know, if, if you're trying to make a prediction about how NFT technology will change the world, you can just go look at the history of how other technologies change the world. And, and a lot of the reason that we, we stuck with the NFT industry through the highs and lows and through all the people who like, you know, were, were skeptical and thought it wouldn't have an impact was because we'd, we'd spent time learning about, uh, the history of other technologies. And we sort of had an understanding of how, how weird technology can look in the first place. So yeah, I, books, podcasts, and then talking to people who are knowledgeable. The third one is, uh, you know, it can be tricky, but a, a lot of the, a lot of smart people like have a variety of podcasts where they've like given their, their thoughts on different matters. So it's really those three things in my opinion. And then obviously, I mean, you're, you're an Emory student, so you should take care or you should utilize those resources as well. Um, cause that's a unique like set of resources that you wouldn't have access to otherwise. Uh, so, uh, both the last question and the last comment. So the, the last comment was that this is really great. Uh, and that the person appreciates your candor, uh, in kind of answering these questions as do I will end with one last question, which, uh, is what's immediately next. So are you going to just keep digging deeper? You answered this to some extent about, um, uh, nifty gateway itself, but do you want to keep digging deeper into this digital art workspace or, uh, is there some other big thing that is the immediate next step? Yeah. I mean, I'm still, yeah, I'm pretty committed to nifty gateway right now. I'm like I said, we're still, we're still running the company, even though it's owned by Gemini and the Winklevoss twins, they let us operate pretty autonomously and we're in charge of, of nifty gateway as a division of Gemini now. So that, that's really what I'm spending my time on for the immediate future. Um, if I were to, to leave Nifty Gateway, I probably wouldn't stay in the digital art space. As I said, I would probably try and spend uh, a year or two years and just like learn about all the new, like all the new ways that technology is changing the world and then find one that I think is a, a good opportunity to start a new company in. And then I would, yeah, I would start a new company there. But I, I, I really wouldn't rush it. This is another thing I've learned, which, which can be like hard for, for young entrepreneurs who are, who are eager to like get off the ground, but far and away, far and away, the, the biggest determinant of your company's success is going to be the market that you build your company in. This was one big thing that I took away from the, the shirt company where the, the shirt market is just not that great. And nobody really wants to invest in it because it's not really growing. Um, it's pretty established unless you have some really like creative way to, to change the shirt industry, it's going to be like hard to, to pitch a disruptive company. Whereas the NFT industry was very, very new, was growing extremely rapidly and it's still growing extremely rapidly, um, had high disruptive potential. So it, in, in some ways it's almost just like a, a no brainer to, to build a company in a, a market that's growing really quickly. And that is highly disruptive as opposed to one that is way more established. So 
maybe the most important decision that you'll make throughout the life of your company is which market you launch the company in and like what what trend you're trying to to be a part of and what wave you're trying to ride essentially so if if i you know were to leave nifty gateway in the nft space i would spend a really long time finding the the right market to start the company in i, I wouldn't rush into anything essentially because like now with the, the benefit of hindsight, I know that the market is the most important thing by far. And if you pick the wrong market, you could do literally everything else right. And it, it wouldn't matter. Your company would still fail. You have to pick the right market. Well, this was a fun conversation for me. Um, and uh, I think it's full of really useful information for uh, Emory undergraduates, graduates, uh, and certainly anybody who comes into contact with uh, innovators and entrepreneurs at Emory. And there are many of them across the Emory ecosystem. So um, really useful, really helpful conversation. Uh, so thanks for taking the time. Really wish you the best with Nifty Gateway. I think it's, a, to your point, it's a, not only a fascinating industry to be in right now uh, or market to be in, but it's it's a really great concept. And, uh, you know, you already did one exciting pivot to go from the, just a payment gateway to an actual marketplace. Look forward to seeing what's next. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious about the long-term display of these things as well um, and yeah, what yeah. opportunities are there. So Exactly. I have my display screen up here. You can see my... I have a variety of art up on the wall, um, yeah. but you can see my digital artwork right here. I have a, a Trevor Andrews Gucci ghost actually, and he just launched last week. We're oh, excited to have cool. him on the platform. Yeah. Nice. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. I, I think this was a really interesting conversation. Um, one, one thing that I think Emory really needs to do is um, let students keep their email addresses after they graduate. I don't know why they shut those down, but I can't access my Emory email. It seems like the easiest way for people to get in touch with me. I would totally still use it. So that's like a no brainer. I, I bet if they did that, they would like increase alumni participation by a lot. Cause yeah, I mean like, I guess I have a personal email address, but I don't, I don't know. It feels more intimate and it's just much easier to access my gem or my Emory one. So, that's an interesting point. Uh, I've worked in alumni affairs uh, divisions and other in institutions. There are folks from uh, alumni affairs and engagement here. We can all make the recommendation to the powers that be. Uh, yeah, I agree. It feels different to still have your school address and have it be a real one uh, as opposed to some kind of Gmail equivalent or something. So, Right. Cool. That, would be, that would be such a no-brainer. I mean, I, I feel like the cost would be negligible and the benefit would be enormous. So I don't know. Right on. We'll do it. Next up. Uh, so we'll fix the email situation. We'll fix the uh, digital art situation. Uh, let us know what we can work on next. We'll uh, we'll turn our attention there. Perfect. So, I think I think it'd be cool also to get some some NFTs hanging up in the hatchery. That would be kind of fun. Listen, you see the amount of wall space we've got. We're game. Yeah. So yeah. we'll we'll have that conversation offline. Yeah. Perfect. Awesome, guys. Well, thanks right. so much for having me. Yep. It was a lot of fun. Thanks again for being here. All right. Bye. All right, take care. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Emory Innovators. To hear additional episodes, search Emory Innovators on Spotify to find or subscribe to this podcast. For more information about the Hatchery, Emory University's Center for Innovation, visit hatchery.emory.edu.